film streak, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about some new movies. And by new movies, I mean new movies that I just haven't seen yet. Not necessarily new, new movies. And if you don't know, if you're new to this, new movies can mean movies that are very old and I just didn't take the time to watch. And so now I'm going to do that. And as I've talked to some people about this podcast over the last, uh, I don't know, few months, maybe, I've tried to explain a little bit of what the idea is. And one of the main things I keep coming back to is I'm looking at blind spots, like films that I just, for whatever reason, I, I never really went down those roads and, and watched. And one of the films that really drove the idea home for me and that I could really easily convey to people was the movie Blonde. And that was a movie starring Ana de Armas, and it was about Marilyn Monroe and her journey through Hollywood and the toll that it took on her as a person, as an actor, everything. And so um, when that movie came out, uh, it had its own kind of buzz and controversy, maybe. But I watched it really to understand a little bit more about the person, Marilyn Monroe herself, uh, at the center of everything. And as I was watching the film, I realized, like, I'd never actually seen any Marilyn Monroe films. I'd seen clips from Some Like It Hot. And, of course, there's all the iconic imagery. There's so many uh, sequences or even just single shots of films that she's been in that are instantly recognizable just as part of pop culture. And here was a chance for me to actually go and watch those films and get the real full context, like what the idea originally was. So that's what I'm going to do. We're going to talk about some Marilyn Monroe films and see how they hold up after all this time. I mean, a lot of these films were from the 50s into the 60s. And what does that really look like? How does that really play today? So that's what we're going to do. That's what's coming up. Let's get into it. Okay, here we are. Film Streak 295. Gentlemen prefer blondes. We're just two little girls from Little Rock. We lived on the wrong side of the tracks. But Little Rock's or square rocks, these gals must have their rocks. Diamonds are a girl's best friend. Yes, <laughs> it was a great book. Greater is a Broadway stage hit, and even more gorgeous, glittering, and hilarious on the screen. With Marilyn Monroe as Lorelei Lee the world's most fabulous gold-digging blonde. I just love finding new places to wear diamonds. And Jane Russell as Dorothy Shaw, the world's most talked-about brunette. Mr. Esmond and I are going to be married. To each other? Of course to each other. Who else to? Well, I don't know about you, Gus. I always sort of figured Lorelei would end up with the Secretary of the Treasury. My little angel, you don't even know there's a certain kind of girl would take advantage of a situation of this sort. May I, uh, may I kiss your hand? I always say a kiss on the hand feels very good, but a diamond tiara lasts forever. Bye-bye, baby. Remember you're my baby when they give you the eye. I like a beautiful hunk of man, but I'm no physical culture fan. Ain't there anyone here for love? Men grow cold as girls grow old, and we all lose our charms in the end. But square cut or pear shape, these rocks don't lose their shape.
So here's a film from director Howard Hawks, legendary Hollywood, early Hollywood filmmaker. This was from 1953. So now we're talking 70 years ago. And, you know, the first thing is that there's some imagery in the film that is instantly recognizable. If you know anything about Marilyn Monroe, there are some moments that are just legendary in terms of the style and some of the musical numbers. And so, uh, you know, I can give you the very basic premise. We've got uh, Marilyn Monroe. She plays Lorelai. Jane Russell, who plays Dorothy. And they're on a trip to Paris. And as I guess was the way to travel in the, what, 50s? Um, they're traveling by boat. So they're on a ship. They're, they're basically taking a, a long cruise journey across the Atlantic to Paris. And we see pretty quickly that these are two women that have a very different approach to life, uh, have very different things they want out of life. Lorelai, who is the blonde, uh, maybe a little more glamorous, maybe a little more uh, high maintenance. Uh, she's also very committed to her fiance. And we see them as they're departing. We see their kind of lovey-dovey, touchy-feely vibes that, uh, that they have for each other. And while her fiance is very, um, very sensitive to Lorelai's charms, her, his father, her father-in-law-to-be, is also very um, doubtful and very suspicious. So he has someone take the trip with them, sort of onboard uh, stalkerish vibes going on. And just to keep an eye on her and to make sure she's, you know, staying up and up. And um, meanwhile, Dorothy is not engaged. She's not married. She's kind of looking for love. And she's taking a back seat to a lot of what Lorelai does. Lorelai. Where's Dorothy? I don't know. Someone whistled at her and she disappeared. I hope she's not going to be a bad influence on you. Oh, no, lover. Dorothy's not bad. Honest. She's just dumb. Always falling in love with some man just because he's good looking. Well, dear, that's I not... I keep telling her, it's just as easy to fall in love with a rich man as a poor man. But yeah. she says, yes, but if they're tall, dark, and handsome, she never gets around to vital statistics until it's too late. Well, that's why I'm her best friend, I guess. She really needs somebody like I to educate her. Yes, dear, but very few girls have your wonderful willingness to learn. I suppose that's true. I want you to put this in a safe place. What is it? A letter of credit. Oh, that's real sweet. You started writing me even before I went away. No, no, dear. You see, a letter of credit is like money. Money? Yes. Just take it to a bank in Paris when you get there. Oh, that's wonderful. Be sure and write me every day. I'll be so lonesome. Oh, I bought you a little going-away present, dear. Daddy! Daddy! Sometimes I think there's only one of you in the whole wide world. Oh, uh, sorry. Wrong room. Who is that? A stranger. He had the wrong room. Yeah, but he's good looking. Hope he isn't just seeing someone off. Dorothy. Well, quite a little place we have here. Oh, hello, fellas. Come on in. Hi. Folks, meet the relay team. How do you do? Nice, nice to know you. How do you do? We're going to have ourselves a little bon voyage party. Skeeter, put the phonograph in there. Come on in, everybody. Use that door. Come on in here. Make yourselves at home. I'll get the glasses. Hello. Hi. You're welcome. Hi. Who's got the champagne? Hey, Dorothy Shaw. I'm counting on you to keep those athletes to yourself. What a coincidence. That's my plan, too. You've got these two characters that they are, in a sense, they are friends, but they are also colleagues. They're doing this job together as showgirls. And so... So as this trip happens, you see the ways that their friendship, but also their kind of a rivalry shows itself. And look, I'll just say this. I mean, we, the, the film is kind of playing on some of the tropes and the stereotypes of uh, women and how men perceive women and how men can maybe uh, misinterpret signals and, and all that kind of stuff. And, Jane Russell here as Dorothy, honestly, for me, really just steals the show. I know this is Marilyn's 
big uh, kind of uh, explosion onto the silver screen. I think this was her first big showcase moment. But Jane Russell here really, I mean, she has the best dialogue. She has the more developed character, I think. And she even comes through in the end, like in a clutch moment, she kind of saves Lorelai from some real trouble. So I I went into this expecting that this was all going to be about Marilyn and the, the whole film's going to revolve around her. I didn't really understand, like, oh, there's actually a, another actor here, Jane Russell, who's not so much of an airhead, not so much of a vapid, uh, superficial talent. She actually brings some smarts to the whole thing. I mean... It is a comedy, and it is fun, and it is light, but it needs a little bit of balance. And I think Jane Russell here really does that for me. She really changes the direction of where this could have maybe gone, just off into like total farce. And it is a little bit of uh, finding the balance. For all of the key signature iconic moments in the film, I mean, the, the main one is probably the musical number towards the end. Diamonds are a girl's best friend. She's singing. She's got the pink dress on. She's got all the men in the suits surrounding her. And my memory of that is, of course, seeing clips of that. But then also when Madonna kind of did her take on that in, I, I don't remember, whatever the video was that she did. Material Girl, I think it was. And so I had a very different understanding of what that scene was supposed to be. You know, I really thought it was about a woman celebrating getting diamonds and gifts and wealth and riches and just being totally shallow. And when you watch the film here, though, you start to see like just Lorelai's just trolling another character in the film. They're on this boat taking this trip. And at some point she's accused of stealing some jewelry. And what she ends up doing, though, when they arrive in Paris is one of the, the numbers that they put on is this number of Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend, knowing that she's been suspected of stealing and knowing that the people that are on her, they're watching this go down. They're watching this number. So I, I didn't realize that. I mean, that's like next level stuff, man. I, I just thought, oh, this was totally a girl just, you know bragging and flexing on what she can get out of life because she's beautiful and young and glamorous. No, no, no. It's actually like, you know, middle fingers in the air to whoever thinks that's what she would do because that's not what she's about. I was like, that's that's pretty tight. I, I, I dig that. So what I can say is this film, for being seven years old, now there are some moments and there are some parts of it, especially some of the characters. It, it, it kind of shows its age, but for the representation of these two characters, of Lorelai and Dorothy, I mean, they are just as whip smart and clever and strong and sassy as you would hope they would be. I mean, it's something that I guess I didn't expect that out of a film like this from this period that um, I really thought this was a film where this was going to show the the kind of uh, seedier, the, the, I don't know, slimier side of how women are depicted in film. You know, the only thing I would say is the very end of the film, it starts to backtrack a little bit on that. And by, by that, I mean, Dorothy helps clear Lorelai of these charges of stealing. And even though Lorelai's fiance had his own suspicions, he turns around, they get married. And then Malone, the, the detective, the, the private eye, I guess, that is following them the whole time, he finds himself able to understand what they what was going on and they both end up getting married both Lorelai and Dorothy get married to these two guys like it almost would have made a little more sense or would have been put it this way it would have felt more contemporary and maybe a little more satisfying today if these two women 
just cleared themselves of all these guys just pestering them and getting in their way and trying to maybe bring them down and just went on and lived their life. And so that one kind of half step back at the end, that it doesn't sit as well. I mean, it, it, it's not a problem, but it is one that I feel like today, if they made this film, it would have ended differently. So with that in mind, though, I mean, it's totally a recommendation. I was really surprised by this. I really thought this was going to be a different kind of film. And I, it's one that I, I'd actually, I'm interested in, in watching again very soon, just to kind of enjoy it a little more and maybe see more in it than, than I saw at the beginning. And maybe see if there's other stuff in it that I just didn't really pick up on. So um, the one thing I'll say is also in context of like Marilyn Monroe films, this was a real bright and vivid and lively introduction to her as an actor. And uh, I, I think the energy and the style that's shown here, I, I, I know some of these other films are going to be different, but um, I'm really impressed so far. All right, so next up, Film Street 296, Niagara. Take me, take me in your arms. She sang of love just as she lived for love, like a Lorelei flaunting her charms as she lured men on and on to their eternal destruction. And her own husband was no exception. It's getting late. Hand me my slip. I hate to move when we have a fight. Never want to leave your side. <laughs> Give me some orange juice, Georgie. <laughs> it's Marilyn Monroe skyrocketing to new dramatic heights. When a man took her loveliness in his arms, he took his life in his hands. Joseph Cotton, helpless in her siren spell. Gene Peters, caught in the destructive whirlpool of another's deceit. I'm parading around showing herself off in that dress. Cut down so low in front you could see her kneecaps. She's a pretty girl. Why hide it? Don't worry about that. She'd like to wear that dress where everybody could see her, right in the middle of the Yankee Stadium. Smell like a dime store. I know what that means. Sure. I'm meeting somebody. Just anybody handy, as long as he's a man. But she could never be his, nor any man's, completely. And that thought whipped him into a frenzy that makes the screen thunder with unparalleled suspense. Hello? Hello? Please? Here's another one from 1953, and this is from director Henry Hathaway, and it stars Marilyn Monroe, Joseph Cotton, and they are a couple that is staying at a lodge, at a, at a cabin, um, overseeing the Niagara Falls. And we're also introduced to a young couple who is on their honeymoon, and that's Ray and Polly. And I guess the, the cabin or the, the place that they're staying in is double booked. And so Rose, Marilyn Rowe, and George, they are staying in the cabin and they haven't left yet. So now we've got a little bit of, a, of uh, these two couples in a, in a little bit of a impasse where we get the sense that these two couples are going to start to intersect. Their, their stories are going to collide here in a way. And that is what happens eventually. And... You know, I, I I really wasn't sure what kind of film this would be. I, I understood it was maybe more of a drama. But when we see that this is more about the insecurities and the suspicions between a couple and how that can play out. And then once another person or other people are involved, like where that can get messy, where it can get even dangerous uh, that's where this film takes us. And so it is a whole different energy. It's really somber, really kind of a bittersweet vibe to it because it's not about the celebration of love and romance and all that, which, you know, Niagara, the setting, I think is traditionally considered that. But here it's it's got a more sinister vibe to it. And it's really because we see Rose as not the person who is the fun and lively 
wife or partner, but someone who is maybe uh, maybe getting out of pocket, you know? And her husband, George, is also responding to it in some not cool ways. You know, we see her really just kind of stepping out and messing around with another guy who I, I don't even know if he's actually named. Uh, but we see George, his reaction to that is, okay, I got to do something about this guy. And so he takes action, basically trying to fake his own death. And when we see Rose go to identify him, the, the assumption is this is George, but it's not George. And then this other couple, Ray and Polly, they get involved because George shows up and talks to Polly and says, hey, you need to help me get away with this crime because I killed the other dude. It gets tangled. It gets messy. And in the end, even though Marilyn Monroe is the star here and her character seems to be kind of leading the, the film, it seems to be the protagonist. She really isn't. And it's strange because I, I tried to nail down, like, who is the protagonist in this film? You know, in that respect, it is a more complicated film dramatically and thematically. Like it's not really clear whose side I'm supposed to be on and who I who I want to see succeed here. You know, I, I feel like I understand George's point of view of being very suspicious and being even um angry and bitter over how his wife is acting, but also we see Rose's point of view of she's not happy in this relationship. And when we see Ray and Polly and their reactions and they're just trying to enjoy their honeymoon, they're not even here for any of this. And they're trying to just uh, kind of stay out of it, but they keep getting drawn into it through different interactions that they have. You know, there is a point in the film where it does turn into a little bit more of a thriller where we see George is kind of pursuing Rose and we see what happens to her. And then at some point he comes across Polly and they end up on a boat that is like headed toward the falls. And that becomes like the climax of the film. And I, I'll just say that I think the language of films and especially of thrillers and suspense, it's changed so much in 70 years that this film, it doesn't have a lot of drive to it. Now, I'm sure at the time it felt very uh, suspenseful and tense, but today uh, it feels kind of ho-hum. It actually, it actually is kind of boring. And so that's where I guess, you know, if you really step back and say, okay, well, I, this suspense isn't really doing it for me, but maybe there's more to it thematically that I'm trying to understand. Uh, I, I just think it's it's a story that, it's probably been told, I mean, plenty of times already. You know, it even kind of reminds me of, uh, just to bring it a little more up to date, I just talked about recently Deep Water, which is a film about a couple where the wife is getting real, getting real out of hand, and yet the husband is kind of okay with it until he's not. And then he takes matters into his own hands. And then we see the fallout of all of that, right? And that's kind of a similar territory that this film is. And, you know, it's interesting to see the difference, right? The evolution of this kind of story, but also the storytelling techniques. Like that film from, what, last year, two years ago? But then this, Niagara from 70 years ago, they're very similar uh, territory, but very different in execution. And so I, I think the, the, where I come down on this is like the story itself is somewhat interesting. Their performances are more nuanced, more subdued. They're not, you know, we're not talking about gentlemen prefer blondes now. Same year, right? These films came out in the same year, but this is just a very different kind of film. So just maybe adjust the expectations a little bit. So in that respect, um, it's a recommendation, but it's a very mild recommendation. I, I, I think if you're looking for something that's a little more lively, a little more entertaining, 
This might not be it. This is maybe more into the territory of something like a noir film. Anyway, take that for what you will and uh, check it out when you have some time. Okay, here we go. Film Streak 297, The Seven Year Itch. <laughs> Careful, I had my appendix out last year. <laughs> it's the funniest comedy since laughter began. Of a wife who spent the summer away. And a husband who stayed home to play and play and play. Because now I'm going to take you in my arms and kiss you. Very quickly and very hard. Wait a minute! With Marilyn Monroe soaring to new heights as the screen's most lovable laugh getter. Everything's fine. A married man, air conditioning, champagne and potato chips. It's just a wonderful party. Tom Ewell, who created the original role on Broadway. Evelyn Keyes, Sonny Tufts, Robert Strauss. This is what they call classical music, isn't it? Yes. I could tell because there's no vocal. Shh. Don't talk. Let it sweep over you. Relax. Go limp. Like this? I've been married for seven years. And I'm afraid I'm coming down with what you and Dr. Steichel call the seven-year itch. <laughs> what am I going to do? If something itches, my dear sir, the natural tendency is to scratch. I scratched last night. There was this young lady. Hi. Uh, we forgot about the stairs. Isn't that silly? It was very easy. I just pulled out the nails. Oh. It's perfectly safe. Nobody will ever find out. Well, where shall I sleep? Now, this is from 1955. This is from director Billy Wilder, a legendary Hollywood comedy director and filmmaker. And here is a film that, uh, you know, I honestly, for the most part of the running time, I had a lot of problems with. And only because... It just doesn't, it just doesn't age well. And the biggest, I guess, problem I have with it that doesn't sit so well today is the point of view that, the, the, you know, this film is about, I, mean, I, I, I guess I need to kind of back up here. The, the film is essentially about a, a, a a man, a businessman who is, um, he's got a wife, he's got a son and he sends him off on vacation. And while he's back home, he's working, but also he's immediately struck with the urge to give in to his vices. And whether that's smoking a cigarette, having a drink or talking to a pretty girl it's like immediately his inner voice, his inner monologue takes over. Literally, where we hear him talking to himself. He's actually talking out loud to himself. Oh, what do I do? How do I put this? How do I tamp this down? This desire to do these things versus like, hey, I what next responsibility do I need to take care of? So it, it almost feels like this is a film that was written about the life of a husband, but not someone who's actually living that life. And maybe it's someone who's not living that life responsibly. How about that? <laughs> so I think the idea is that we're supposed to see this whole thing from a male point of view and how the struggle is real because, you know, there's so many things out there you could do in the world and... If that's the case, I mean, that, look, as, as someone who's not really, I don't know, I just don't operate that way. It's just so basic and it's kind of corny, actually. Because as much as it, I think, tries to elevate the inner monologue of, of a man who is having real, okay, maybe he's having real feelings, real urges or whatever, and tries to make that into something intellectual and like, you know, how do I think through this and how do I rationalize what I want to do versus what I'm supposed to do? It, it, there's a point where we don't see Marilyn Monroe for, I don't know, a good portion of the film until 
Richard, who is the the man here, played by Tom Ewell, who, you know, I think I, I feel like I've seen him in other films, obviously older films, but here is such a, I don't know, such a cornball that uh, it's hard to really take a lot of this seriously. And, and may, look, maybe that's the point. The point is that maybe the, this guy is just a bumbling buffoon who can't control himself, who can't even understand what he's feeling. Maybe that's part of the idea here. But once the girl comes in, who, you know, that's the other problem is, we don't even give her a name. We, we just can't even put an identity to her. Once she comes into the picture, then we see, okay, Marilyn turns on the charm. And it's all about uh, who, who could resist, right? Who could look away? Who could turn away? It's all about what's going on in Richard's head and why he's trying to maneuver this whole situation of meeting her and then inviting her over for a drink. Like, what? Dude, what? But then how that progresses into, and this is over the course of like two or three days, I think. This progresses into more of a relationship and he really gets, he walks up to the line, steps on the line, steps over the line. And somehow it's okay. It's cool because he learns a lesson in the end. Uh, is it though? I mean, because you knew the lesson to begin with, didn't you? And uh, that's where I feel like this, this is a film that I, I think it has a moral to it. And the idea of, you know, what should a man do and what shouldn't he do? And, where those boundaries are. And the film actually does a pretty interesting job of not really judging these characters. It's totally up for me to the, to the viewer to come down on how I feel about it, I guess, and what I would do or wouldn't do. But still, I mean, the idea that this is the representation of, of what it is to be a, a man or a married man and be in this situation I I just I don't know, man. I just feel like dude is just weak. Like Richard has no self control here. And also, not only that, but okay. I mean, if that's what he's gonna do, that's the road he's taking. He's also got no game. I don't know. I I have a hard time with this one. There are moments where it's actually amusing and funny. But there's a lot of this film that I think just doesn't sit well. Like, it's it's kind of stuck in 1955. A lot of the thinking and the attitudes, but also some of the depictions of both men and women and what they are and what they expect out of each other, all that kind of stuff. I just think, I don't know. I don't think they would make this film today. And, you know, if I even, look, if I even try to find another iteration of this i mean maybe the the film i would think of would be uh the woman in red and with gene wilder and and that's what i'm saying the the 1984 version i think there was an i think that was a remake but the 1984 film which um i mean it kind of treads the same territory but also it plays it out differently like it feels a little more nuanced it feels a little more overtly comic like this guy is an idiot in a way he's smart but also he's bad at making good decisions if that makes sense and same thing you've got a, a woman in the film who is kind of hard to look away from is very irresistible in a sense and we see him struggle with that and at the same time like he clearly goes over the line and, uh, you know, I think both of these films, in a way, the problem, because look, there's problems with The Woman in Red too, but the morality of the film is that sometimes you have to learn these lessons by doing things the hard way, but you really don't. These are pretty easy things to figure out. And also, you totally kind of disrespect and just shit on whoever the spouse is in the film. And in this case, you know, uh, Richard 
His wife and son, they're off on vacation, presumably enjoying themselves. And there's even a, an element of, wait, his wife meets an old friend. And so Richard is now suspicious. And maybe he's like kind of got that in the back of his head, but that's not even really real. And so that's part of his rationalization of what he's doing. And I, I just think, uh, come on, man, you're really playing into a lot of weird and kind of slimy stereotypes. So I don't know. I, I have just a little bit too many problems with this film to really, really recommend it. Um, but I mean, if you're looking for something that is exploring those themes, I, this is probably one of the earliest, or, or at least the one that, put it this way, I guess, the one that takes it with a little bit of a lighter heart and it's not so serious, not so dramatic. Um, but I feel like over the last, what, almost 70 years since this came out, there have been better films that have danced in this same style and maybe land a little bit better. If you're just looking for Marilyn Monroe, and this, honestly, this one is an iconic film too. This has the moment where, you know, the iconic moment where she stands over the subway grate and her dress goes up, right? And of course, if, like if you saw Blonde, you know, like that filming that was probably not the funny and amusing moment that it seems like. Like behind the scenes, it was probably actually fucking traumatizing. And so when you take that into account too, it's like just the the gaze of it all is so pervasive here. It's just, and it's kind of gross. So, uh, I don't know. I would, honestly, it would, the more I talk about it, the more I kind of want to back away from this film. Like it doesn't really work entirely, but also just thinking about maybe some other context, I'd recommend something else. Okay, let's keep it moving. Film Streak 288, Some Like It Hot. Not since Scarface, so much action. Not since the Marx Brothers, so much comedy. Not since the seven-year itch, so much Maryland. The best picture this year will also be the funniest. Good night, sugar. There's one thing sure, boy never met girl like this before. You've never laughed more at sex or a picture about it. You stay here as long as you like. Jack may have beaten Tony to the sugar, but not for long. You're not giving yourself a chance. Don't fight it. So this is from 1959, just a few years later, also by director Billy Wilder. And here I would say this is a film that, you know, I this is probably the one that I'm the most aware of, of any of these films. And part of that, I, I, I have to think, has to do with the fact that Marilyn Monroe is not the only star here. And some of these other films, like she's the main name associated with the film. Like all the other people in the film, I never really heard of before. And maybe they weren't heard of afterwards. But here, I mean, you've got Marilyn Monroe, Jack Lemmon, and Tony Curtis. These three really carry the film together. And honestly, it's like Jack Lemmon and Tony Curtis are doing most of the work. And so just a little bit of the premise of the film here, it's, this is in the twenties in Chicago during a prohibition and Jack Lemmon, Tony Curtis, they play Joe and Jerry and they are uh, musicians. They're struggling musicians. They get kind of caught up in a raid at a speakeasy. And so they're out, they're looking for work. They're trying to find a gig. And as they're having to deal with, criminal elements in the Chicago area, they witness a murder. They're immediately on the run. They're like, ah, we're out of here. We, we can't stay here now. This is no good. 
So just in a last ditch effort to get out of town, they booked this job, this gig with a women's group, uh, like a musical group. And so they become Josephine and Daphne. And, uh, well, that's where, that's where the comedy comes in. I mean, there, there's enough of a back and forth and a banter between the two guys where we see like, they don't, Hey, they don't always agree on the same things and have the same idea about what they're doing and how to get out of an, uh, a, a situation. But here they both agree, like, this is all we can do now. We, we've got to do this. So they get their wigs out, get their dresses out, and they pose as women on this trip. Once they're clear from Chicago, it does. the film does take a turn, and it is about them trying to, one, not blow their cover and remain Josephine and Daphne, but also they're, they're, they're dealing with all these other women that are on the trip, and trying to fit in, but uh, they also start to strike up a relationship. And that is in the form of Sugar Kane, who is Marilyn Monroe. While it might seem like she's just, you know, a, a little bit of a ditz, uh, she is someone who is not really down with this musical group thing either. She's just kind of looking for a way to get by and maybe travel and find a, a, a new direction in life. Terribly sorry. It's okay. I was scared it was sweet soup. You won't tell anybody, will you? Tell what? Well, if they catch me once more, they're going to kick me out of the band. You the replacement for the bass and sax? That's us. And I'm Daphne. Uh, this is uh, uh, Joe Zephine. Hello. I'm Sugar Cane. Hi. Sugar Cane? Yeah, I changed. It used to be Sugar Kowalczyk. The Polish? Yes. I come from this musical family. My mother is a piano teacher. My father was a conductor. Where did he conduct? On the Baltimore and Ohio. Oh. I play the ukulele and I sing, too. Sings, too? <laughs> well, I don't have much of a voice, but then this isn't much of a band, either. I'm only with them because I'm running away. Running away from what? Oh, don't get me started on that. Hey, you want some? It's bourbon. <laughs> I'll take a rain check. <laughs> I want you to think I'm a drinker. I can stop any time I want to, only I don't want to, especially when I'm blue. We understand. All the girls drink. It's just that I'm the one that gets caught. Story of my life. I always get the fuzzy end of the lollipop. My scene's straight. I'll say. <laughs> we'll see you around, girls. Bye, sugar. <laughs> we have been playing with the wrong band. Down, Daphne. How about the shape of that liquor cabinet, huh? Forget it. One false move and they'll toss us off the train. Then there'll be the police, the papers, and the mob in Chicago. And so that's where Joe is, uh, he starts to strike up a relationship with Sugar. And part of that is through a little bit of a ruse, he puts on this other identity as, I don't know, this uh, heir to like the shell oil family or something. And meanwhile, we've got uh, Jerry who there's a, an older, like a tycoon type that just takes a real shine to him or her and uh, decides he wants to just track her down. This film plays in a lot of gray areas of not only like gender politics and gender relationships, but also class and wealth and privilege. And uh, I, I think for a film that came out, what, I mean, we're talking over 60 years ago now, is actually kind of threads a needle. And it, in some ways, it still holds up. Now, in some ways, it's probably a little bit dated. It's got some, some maybe a little bit of troubling uh, attitudes about, you know, men and women and the dynamics between them. But a lot of what I think it's commenting on the, the bigger picture stuff, I think it still kind of holds up. And even to the point where as the film ends and we see like where these characters all end up, I think it's actually a little bit progressive for the time. There may be a lot progressive for the time. I mean, the, the final shot with Jerry as Daphne and with Osgood, who's the the I don't know the wealthy tycoon 
who's just chasing after him or her, that final scene with them uh, where he finally decides, I can't go through with this. I got to tell this guy. And the guy's like, I don't care. <laughs> Uh, I I think that's a really uh, that's a real forward thinking, you know. So um, I I think it's a recommendation for me, at least in terms of the energy of it, the attitude of it. It feels different, you know. It's not like the Seven Year Age, which it plays on a very interior level of the character and his thoughts and kind of squeamish desires that he has. This is about these two guys, and the, those thoughts are kind of out on display, and it's them modulating those things. They're not bad guys. They're musicians. They're not criminals. They're just on the run so they don't get killed. And so even though they lean into areas of like, ah, we're going to do this, we're going to get away with this kind of stuff, they're still coming down on like, wait, but that's not who we are. And so... It, maybe it's a little bit of a different approach to the same territory, but this I think works better. And honestly, it holds up better because there's a whole circus to it of these guys are just like trying to survive. So there's different stakes involved. And I think that makes some of this a little more palatable. So to me, this is a recommendation. Um, it's, it's actually really fun. And uh, I honestly, I want to see it again also. All right, last one up here. Film streak 299. Man, 299 films. Here we go. The Misfits. I just met me a girl sweet enough to eat. Fine looking woman. How'd he do? I have an empty house out in the country just beyond Hawleyville. It's all yours if you want some peace and quiet before you go back. Gee, goes on forever. There's no better place to be. You couldn't find better company either. You're a real beautiful woman. You think you could break away from this paradise long enough to do a little mustanging? Horses? We'd have to pick up another man. Well, better than wages, ain't it? Well, anything's better than wages. It's like a dream. Well, we'll never see this again in history, you know. You kill him? Okay, so here we have a film from director John Huston, and this is from 1961. And first and foremost, the maybe the the downbeat introduction to this film for me is that this was Marilyn Monroe's last film, and it was also Clark Gable's last film. And those two, Clark Gable, of course, goes much further back into film history as being a legendary leading man, Gone with the Wind, so many other films that came before this. And Marilyn Monroe started in the early 50s. So these two kind of screen icons in the same film together, the expectations must have been pretty high for this, I feel like. If I can just kind of get into what this film is about, I mean, it's we're introduced to Rosalind, who is Marilyn Monroe, and she's recently divorced. She's dealing with a lot of trauma and emotions about her ex-husband and the abusive relationship that it it appears to have been. You know, we hear her talking about it at the beginning. It's it sounds like she's she's rehearsing or practicing like a statement or a testimony. And we meet her friend Thelma. We meet Guido. Uh, Clark Gable, he plays a, a cowboy, an aging cowboy named Gay, who decides to tag along. And so we have these four characters, and they're just kind of hanging out. And they're in this cabin, Guido's old home, where his wife was. And he's got a lot of things that are still there that are untouched. And so the whole thing just has a real, it's got a real kind of mournful vibe to it. I mean, and for obviously not just the story, but also the, the facts that these actors, the, we would never see them again on film. 
And so knowing that going in now, that really, uh, it really colors so much of what is happening and what you're seeing. So as the film is about all these characters trying to kind of find their way a little bit, so maneuver some of the things they've been struggling with, we meet a fifth character, and his name is Purse, is played by Montgomery Clift. So what happens is Gay needs help with tracking down some horses that are some Mustangs that are out on the range. So he recruits Purse, but Purse wants to go to the rodeo and take a stab at that. That's where he was originally going as their paths cross. So they oblige him, they take him there. He has uh he has some run-ins with a bull and whatever. And uh then after that, they go off back out to the country to go find these horses. And the whole time, I mean, we're seeing Rosalind, who is Marilyn Monroe, who is kind of taken by some of this, uh, uh, the this whole different lifestyle, like not living in an urban city environment, not dealing with all the drama of a problematic relationship, of just this little more freestyle, open air vibe that's going on. But I, I think it kind of it kind of zaps her in a way because she's. She's intrigued by it, but also disturbed by it because it's actually a harder life. Like Gay tells her, like, this this is hard for him too. And even Guido, who, you know, they both relay in their own ways that they're veterans and presumably from World War II, because they talk about bombing raids and stuff and how that affected them and they don't really know how to handle it. And I think that's, that's kind of the thing that runs throughout this entire film that all these characters in their own ways, they're all dealing with and, and they're racked with guilt and, and trauma and, and even loneliness. And some of them resort to different things, you know, gay, he turns to drinking and he talks about his children and uh, it, it, they all just have different ways of confronting or trying to cope with these demons that they have. That star, that star is so far away that by the time the light from it reaches us here on earth, might not even be up there anymore. Boy, you sure know a lot, don't you, pilot? Astronomy is in all the library books, first. Nothing to it but reading. Still, it's wonderful to know things. Knowing things don't matter much. You got something a lot more important. What? You care. Whatever happens to anybody, it happens to you. You're really hooked into the whole thing, Rosalind. It's a blessing. People say I'm just nervous. If it weren't for the nervous people in the world, we'd all still be eating each other. Well, I don't know about you educated people, but us ignorant folk gotta hit the sack. Why is the dog trembling? Yeah, I got a whiff of those horses, I guess. Must be close by, get them. Baby, baby. <laughs> Quiet, oh, Joe, he couldn't help it. It's, have the horses ever kicked him before? It's not the horses he's afraid of. It's us. What are you talking about now, Guido? I never mistreated that dog, and you know it. It's only common sense, Gay. He knows there's wild animals up there. Dogs were wild, too, once. He's just remembering when. He's been up here enough times to know what's going to happen. He's just scared he's going to end up dead, too. Uh, come on, honey. Keep yourself nice and warm here for the fire. You kill him? No, no. We uh, we sell him to the dealer. He kills him. Well, they're what they call chicken feed horses. You know, turn them into dog food, like you buy in the store for the dog and the cat. Well, I thought you knew that. Everybody knows that. Maybe you uh, better sleep on the truck. 
case something comes crawling around. When we get to the moment where Gay finds these horses, Rosalind kind of figures out, like, they're not here to just bring them home. They're here to kill these horses. That changes the whole vibe. Because now it's not about we're going to help save an animal or rescue animals or uh, care for these animals. We're here to get rid of these animals. And I think the, you know, if I look at it a certain way, to me, my read is that these characters, these four characters, or five of them really, they are the misfits, but also these horses are their counterparts. And it's like, if this is what we do to animals who have no owners and have no real uh, place to call home and have no direction, and this is what we do to them, what do they do to people like us who are struggling or stuck or forgotten? And I, I guess that's that's my take on it. That's what I think this film is trying to say. It's like there are people like this from different walks of life. They can find that common bond with each other, but what about them as a whole? And for that, I mean, The Misfits is is a little bit of an examination of what it means to kind of be on the outs or just be on the outside even. And where you would probably think your life could be ideal if, man, if things had just been like two degrees off, my life would have been perfect. But here's what happened, and now here I am. And how do I get through this? Or how do I get past this? And for some of these characters, they don't. It's just, it's, just, it's not in the cards for them. And I, I guess that's the idea of this. That's the dilemma that we've put these characters in is is what happens to people like this so in that regard i mean this film is actually it's kind of deep you know it's a lot deeper than i thought um i really thought this was kind of just like a cowboy movie like a modern day cowboy movie but this is a recommendation i think the only thing i would say is that you can see that especially with Marilyn Monroe, but even with some of the actors, with Clark Gable, that there's like a rawness and and you could look at it as like intentional, but I almost see it as like, it's it's not really polished. Like there's, there's a, a crudeness to some of the acting, even honestly, some of the like directing feels like just a touch off. And I don't know if it was that this was a film being made with these actors, or especially Marilyn Monroe, who, you know, the understanding that I have is that she was on a on a steady decline. And it's not always apparent, but in some moments and some shots, I feel like she's not there. Like, it's you can see it in the eyes in a way. Clark Gable is a different thing where I feel like he's still Clark Gable, but the commentary, the the approach to like, this is a person who's seen better days. Uh, I think that also comes across. Maybe that's more intentional, but uh, obviously there was a reality to it that struck not long after this film was made. It's interesting as a film on its own, with the other context of what happened to these people and and how this film was made, maybe it's a whole different story. Um, I would recommend it still. And, uh, you know, just understand that it's, it's a very different tone and a very different style of a film. And look, all of these, like I said, I think except for some like at hot, they're still on criterion channel as I'm recording this, they may not be for much longer, so if you have Criterion Channel, if you've ever thought about it, check it out. They're there. Because I don't even know if you can find these on like DVD or anything. I mean, maybe you can. So, all right. Here we go. That was it. So, look, that's that's what I have on Marilyn Monroe for now. I'm sure there, I know there are many other films she made. So, I'll get to those another day. 
But I wanted to cover these because I feel like these, from what I could see very quickly, hit like different parts, different different moments in her career, but also were very different kinds of films. And uh, so take that for what you will. Check those out. Um, if you want to hear some other episodes, go to filmstreak.com. You can subscribe. You can get uh, new episodes by email. And uh, don't forget the IMDb list. I've got all these films there. So you can check those out, add them to your list, or you can rate them, whatever you want to do. See where they're streaming, actually. that's uh, It's going to be useful for that, too. I've got another big film coming up for 300. You might know what it is. You might be able to take a guess. But if not, hey, just go see whatever's new out there. And um, talk to you later. Thank you.